May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms the horror of that shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Uh, this, of course, is the poem Invictus um, by William Ernest Hensley, first published in uh, 1875. And many people have cited this, uh, this poem as, as a source of, um, of uh, empowerment and encouragement. Uh, everyone from Nelson Mandela, Teddy Roosevelt, to Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber. And it's no wonder. I mean, it matters no, not how straight the gate. It matters uh, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I mean, this is the sort of thing that you would think rugged hunters say to themselves in the morning as they get up and pour a cup of black coffee and pour vinegar in it or something, you know. Something to get up and, and really get charged for the day. I mean, this is something a soldier says as he's, you know, rushing off into war. And Henley permits no sense of entitlement. No way he allows anyone to say this and play the victim. I'm in control. Even if I can't change the circumstances of my life, I'm in control. I'm the boss here. I guess there's something good about that, you know, whatever might you want to say about, about Henley's philosophy. You can't call him a whiner, you know. I mean, there's no saying, oh, you know, buck up and get over it. You can't say that he plays the victim card or leaves room for self-pity. There's no sitting at the bar crying in your beer in Henley's world, is there? But there is, of course, a huge downside. And he's a stoic. And he leaves no room. He leaves no room for people to, uh, to claim the victim status. But he also leaves no room to claim any help of divine intervention. There's no room for whining, but there's also no room for God. And it's no accident that in three of the four stanzas... He makes this allusion to, you know, um, to Christian faith. And, and he's saying there's a, there's a different way, and I'm going to live in a way that's, that's unafraid. I mean, even at the end, it matters not how straight the gate. You know where that language comes from, don't you? This is Jesus, right? Uh, you know, enter into the straight gate. He, he goes on, how charged with punishments the scroll. You know where this comes from too, don't you? This is from the book of Revelation. When the scroll is opened, right? And, and who's written in there? Whose name is written in the, in the Lamb's Book of Life? And it's no accident how he ends it. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And you know in the Old Testament, when Moses asked God, what's your name? God says to Moses, my name is Yahweh. Sometimes translated in English Bibles, Jehovah. Which means... God's name is I Am. Henley's poem says, you know who the I Am is? Each one of us. We are our own God. And so I, I understand why people find this kind of empowering. 
But I also look at this poem and I find it absolutely antithetical to the Christian faith. This is not the gospel. This is not the Christian faith. It is not the apostolic witness. And you say to me, oh, okay, well, what is then? And I say, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I've been thinking about that all week. Exactly that, that question. What is, what is the apostolic witness? And it's in the book of Acts. If you have your bulletin, pull that out and open it with me. While I give you just a little bit of background, Paul is off on his second missionary journey. He's already been off onto one, left from Antioch, went up into Asia Minor, Turkey, established a number of churches, and they're deciding, you know, it's time to go out and visit those guys again. You know, we're going to go visit these churches, and while we're at it, we're going to do a little northern tour. We're going to go north into Asia and we're going to do some new missionary work. We're going to plant some churches. Um, if directionally challenged you might be, um, it would be like being in Columbus and saying we're going to go to Toledo, and then from Toledo to Chicago, and then maybe up to Milwaukee, and then if, maybe even into Winnipeg. You know, we're going to go, well, this is our, this is our plan, our direction, and, and this is exactly what they set off to do. Eventually, we're going to circle back around to the south, and then, you know, finally make their way back to, uh, to Antioch. But something happens as they're on this trip. Look at the very first verse. And they, that is Paul and Silas and, uh, and Luke, who later comes along, and they went into the region of Fergia and Galatia. Look at this next line. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Stop. You, you cannot speak the word in Asia. I didn't think the Holy Spirit was in this business of stopping people from speaking the word. But it's right here in the text, isn't it? They have a plan, and the Holy Spirit says, no, not that way. Look at the next verse. And when they come to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. No, we're not going here either. It's like Paul and Silas and Luke, who later comes along, like they have this plan. Listen, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go here and here and here, and then we're going to go there and there, and we're going to take this little route. I think they even called the travel agent. They booked the tickets, you know? I mean, they're on their way. But something happens. I don't know how the Holy Spirit interceded. I don't know, you know, whether it was like their visas got revoked, you know, um, passports were, were deemed invalid, uh, you know, uh, no Jews allowed here. I'm not sure what happened to stop them. But some circumstance that Luke reflects back upon later and says, you know what? The Holy Spirit got in our way. Each time we wanted to go this way, he said no. I mean, it would be like... If you set out on this little itinerary, you're going to go from Columbus to Toledo, Toledo to Chicago, Chicago to Milwaukee, and then up to Winnipeg, and, and you're off on your way, and you wind up in Kansas City. <laughs> She's not in here. You might have thought my wife was driving. You know, um, you can go. She likes to go different directions. Um, yeah. Don't you dare tell her, Lydia. I, I, I'm one. It was really good. It was all complimentary. Um, yeah, you, you, you're going somewhere, and you wind up in a different place. That's exactly what happens to Paul and Silas and to Luke, who, who comes along for the way. But that's not the end of the story. Look with me at verse 8. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. This is on the far west coast of, of Turkey, of Asia Minor. They, they're planning on heading north, and they wind up on the way west coast. I mean, 
Now you're on your little trip and you, you're winding up in uh, San Diego. You know, this is not at all. That might be a nice trade-off from Winnipeg if it was like in November or something like that. But this is, this is not at all where you're going, right? Verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia standing there urging him saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Paul has a vision, a dream. And, and, and here it is. There's this man. He, he's European, you know. He's, he's Macedonian. They're planning on going to Asia, and he has a vision of a European man saying, come over here. So Paul wakes up, and he does what you would do. He gets his friends together and says, you're not going to believe this dream I have. So there's this Macedonian man saying, come over and help us. And his friends say, you know what? I think God is calling us to Macedonia. Hey, it's just a boat ride across the, the, the sea here. Let's jump in a, a ship, and, and, and we'll book new tickets. And that's exactly what they do. They head off to Macedonia. But there's one more little twist in the story. They get to Macedonia, and you think, I mean, you think the very first convert would be, wait for it, a Macedonian man, right? I mean, this is the vision. A man of Macedonia. Come on over. And what do they find? Uh, Chapter uh, 16, verse 13. On the Sabbath day, we, that's Paul, Silas, and Luke, went outside to the gate of the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Uh, Just as a little insert here, um, wherever there were ten Jewish men, you could form a synagogue. But if there were less than ten Jewish men, Jews in a a local community would gather by a river. And they would call it a place of prayer. There are are apparently very, very few men here, less than ten. And they only mention the women who are gathered. Well, verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. From the city of Thyatira, seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and she was baptized. The very first Christian convert in Europe was not a Macedonian man, it was an Asian woman. I mean, she's from Thyatira, which is in Turkey, where they already were. She, she has crossed over. She's in Europe. And now they're there as well. This isn't at all what Paul had expected, is it? We're going to go north into Asia and he winds up, you know, way in the west in Europe. It wasn't the man that they had led to the Lord at first. It was a woman. This isn't at all the way things were supposed to work out. This is not at all what they expected. You stayed with me, so good for you. So here's the payoff for that. That's what it's like when you follow the Holy Spirit. Never what you expect. Following the Holy Spirit is not what we expect. Oh, we have our strategies, right? We have our plans. We know what we're going to do. We've got this thing all worked out. And it doesn't happen like that. I'm supposed to be in, like, my eighth year at a university teaching. You know, it's not like that, is it? I mean, uh, you're supposed to be well, where you thought you were going to be. Oh, you know how we do it. We baptize our language, right? We, oh, you know, the Lord. But you know what it means. We have a plan. We want God to come along and say, yeah, that's really nice. I'm glad you got that plan and we're going to help you happen. But that's not the way it works out. Following the Holy Spirit is about 
about detours. It's about different directions, about change in the way that we thought things were going to be like. That's what it's like when you follow the Holy Spirit. Your career is not the one you thought it was going to be. Once again, I'm supposed to be in electronics. You know, I mean, it's not happening. I can barely work a toaster anymore. Uh, you know, you, you you got to plan for your career, for your marriage, for your money. I mean, I don't know. I, I know a young couple that when they got married, they told me that they had saved up money for this. Uh, you know, they didn't have a lot of money, so they saved up money for a trip to the Poconos. And then they heard about this woman who couldn't pay her rent, and so they took another trip. A closer one, and paid this woman's rent. You know, they had this plan for what they were going to do. They had set this money aside. There was going to be a trip to the Poconos, and they end up in Gatlinburg because it was cheaper and they could help somebody out. You know, it, who knows? What, the, what you, we have these plans, this this idea, and the Holy Spirit opens a door. It's not the door we had thought about. Not the door we had intended to go through. But if we're wise, we'll listen. If we're, if we're wise, we'll take a step of faith, which is, which is sometimes very scary, right? And do what it is the Holy Spirit has opened the door for us to do. If you want to you read a book that will throw you back in your chair, read Michael Green's 30 Years That Changed the World. It's his, um, his look at the book of Acts. Michael Green is an Anglican priest and a, um, uh, a, a theologian. Um, he educated both Oxford and Cambridge. Let me read to you just a bit from his book here. He said, the point is clear. The first Christians lived in total dependence on the Holy Spirit. This is one of the most conspicuous differences between them and us. We rely on our organization, our education, our psychology, our finance, our plant, and so forth. We show little sign of over-dependence on the Holy Spirit. We despise faith and call it pietism. We regard spiritual realities as somewhat unreal and are embarrassed to even talk about them. They fit untidily into the secular age in which we live. He goes on to say this, Yet unlike us, the early Christians were not embarrassed. They rejoiced in the power of the Holy Spirit and in His presence. They knew they were following His wake. They knew that above all, they needed to keep in closest touch with the Holy Spirit, their unseen guide. Nothing, he says, nothing must allow, be allowed rather to hinder the flow of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Oh, that we were just a little more like that and a little less like Henley's, the captain of my soul. Oh, that we were the kind of people who said, you know what, the Holy Spirit is the captain of my faith. He's the captain of my soul. Oh, what a difference that would make in the church. What a difference that would make in the world. Don't you think? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.